Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 through 31. I give thanks to God that we can read His Word in a setting like this today. Some places it's not possible. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And if you will turn um, to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for our sermon text this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, our, our passage will be verses 7 through 15, and, and last Sunday we looked at the first six verses of this chapter. We talked about the light of the gospel, how it shines in our hearts and transforms us into people of perseverance, integrity, and humility. And today Paul continues the discussion on the gospel, but the theme is the power of the gospel, and the power of the gospel is made manifest through us, the power of the gospel is revealed to the world through believers. And so we have a big task in displaying the gospel. So if, if you were thinking about designing this gospel, coming up with a, a way to structure it so that its power would be made manifest, how, how, would, you, how would you do this? What, what would you start with? I had to think of the videos that the U.S. military develops for recruitment. One video by the U.S. Army gives the dictionary definition of strong and then says, with all due respect to Webster, there is strong, then there is army strong. And then it proceeds to go through this series of, of positive images 
of army life, while this voiceover says there is physical strength and emotional strength and strength of character and strength to do well and strength to build and strength to tear down and strength to get over yourself. And then at the end, it says, there is nothing that is as strong as the U.S. Army because there is nothing that is as strong as a U.S. Army soldier. It's a very compelling video, and it appeals to the part of us that wants to be part of something bigger than us, to be part of something powerful. But what they don't show in those recruitment videos is the other side of military life, the the loneliness of separation, the traumatic physical and emotional experiences, and the fact that 20% of returning veterans have symptoms of major mental health problems, and only half of them get treated for it. There is general agreement that there's a mental health crisis among veterans, and suicide rates are double that of the general population. But the Army doesn't put that in their recruitment videos. It would be ludicrous for them to put that in their recruitment videos, because they don't want to advertise the vulnerabilities of military life. But the Bible also portrays the Christian life as a battle in which we are soldiers. But as we look here at this letter by the Apostle Paul, he doesn't have the same approach to recruitment or proclaiming the power of the gospel like the U.S. Army. Maybe it would have been better if he had just continued this image of the triumphal procession from chapter 2. Maybe he could add the details about the streets of gold and no more sorrows but he flips it upside down. Here he emphasizes his weakness and his vulnerability and his suffering. He says he suffered great affliction and was utterly burdened beyond his strength in chapter 1. He almost had PTSD from the painful visit in chapter 2. And here in our text, he says we are mere jars of clay. So Paul is not emphasizing the strength of the soldier. He's basically waving the white flag. He says, if it depends on me, I can't do it, and I'm done. But it's not about the strength of the soldier. It's not about the soldier. It's about our commander. And the outcome is not dependent on our strength, but on our faithfulness. And when the battle is over, there will be no doubt whose strength won the battle. So let's look here at the power of the gospel and the ways that Paul demonstrates it in his life. There's a a bit of a progression from verses 7 through 15 in the ways that this power is demonstrated, and we'll be looking at these. So the, the power of the gospel, four points, is demonstrated in the believer's weakness, suffering, death, and resurrection. Weakness, suffering, death, and resurrection. So let's read our text, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 15. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, 
but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So this treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the light of the gospel that has shone in our hearts, the gospel to the which the unbelievers have been blinded by the God of this world, this treasure is in us. And we have something of supreme value. And we've heard recently from the sermons in Matthew 13 about the kingdom of heaven and how it is like a treasure. It is a treasure that redirects our lives, and it's a treasure for which we give up all other of our pursuits and possessions in order to get the greatest treasure. But Paul says we have this treasure in jars of clay. The treasure is made more valuable, he says, as it is carried in our weakness and in our vulnerability and in our mortality. Now, it's not natural to put something of great value into something of little value. You don't put something of great worth into a vessel of no dignity. It's like serving a fancy banquet to a table full of high-ranking guests using paperware and leftover containers. It doesn't make sense. You know, I was at a birthday party for a one-year-old, and this would probably only happen for a firstborn child, but the potato chips were served in a kid's potty chair. Now, it was a new, a new chair, but with Walmart return policies being as generous as, you, as they are, you just hope it really was new. But you get the idea. This treasure here is in jars of clay that are not worthy of what it's holding. Clay pots in the Old Testament were essentially disposable dishes. And so in Leviticus 11, God tells Moses that if anything unclean, like a mole rat, a mouse, a lizard, a gecko, or a chameleon dies and touches something like a garment or a sack, then that article would need to be put into water until that evening to be considered clean again. But if one of those unclean animals dies and falls into an earthenware vessel, then everything in the vessel is unclean, and you don't bother cleaning the vessel. You just break it. You just destroy it. And so these things were, were really not that valuable. You just get some mud and, and, and make another one. So they're not durable. They, they break easily. They can be ground into powder. But we, too, are jars of clay. We are as strong as a clay pot. You know, Paul's emphasis here on weakness is a recurring theme in his letters to the Corinthians. We saw it in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 1. He admitted in chapter 1 of this letter that he was in despair. And he lists in both uh, chapter 6 and 11 his list of, of sufferings that he had gone through. He talks in chapter 7 about his fears in chapter 12, he talks about his weakness and his thorn in the flesh. He says, God chose what is foolish and weak to shame the wise and the strong, so that the one who boasts will boast in the Lord. 
So why is, why is Paul emphasizing our weakness? Now, if we remember what we talked about in the Corinthian culture, they emphasized power and influence and status, kind of like our own culture today. They like to build monuments to themselves, and, and so the one who had the most money or power was the one who got what he wanted. So in one way, he was arguing against the status quo. He was pushing back against the ones who measure their success by their achievement or influence. And the gospel really does change our value systems. But more than that, in, in boasting in his weakness, more than, than just pushing back against the false teachers and against the power-hungry people, he was, was also making an argument for the other side. Because it is true that God does not need those who are wise and strong in this world to proclaim the kingdom. But the other side is perhaps more important for us to grab a hold to. Because in an audience like this, and to the ones of us who are reading this text today, the majority of us are not necessarily thinking that we are wise and strong and powerful. We might be tempted to, might be tempted to aspire to that. We might think that if we were wiser or more powerful, that life would go better for us. But when it comes down to it, most of us are keenly aware of our weakness. We are aware of our status as clay pots. We know we have broken edges. We don't feel too durable. We wonder if we will get crushed to powder by the pressures of life. And the gospel speaks to us in those places. It does not call us to go from weakness to strength to get on God's side. It does not call us to go from small to great in order to be worth something in God's kingdom. Instead, the gospel locates God's power squarely on the side of the weak. Jesus comes to us, and he is with us when we are weak. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Weakness is not something to be avoided. It is not something of which to be ashamed. It is something to be embraced, because through our weakness, Christ's power is made strong. And through our weakness, the power of the gospel is made manifest. Jesus comes to us when we are weak. Now, if it really was up to us, then this wouldn't make sense. If it really was up to us to change people's lives and to transform their hearts, to redirect their desires, and to turn them from being selfish, inward-oriented, pleasure-addicted, comfort-seeking people to one that really desires God and that loves God above, our, above all else, and one that loves its brother or its neighbor in genuine, self-sacrificing sort of ways. If that kind of change was something that we had to bring about in people's lives, then our weakness really would be exposed for the weakness that it is, and our clay pots would break, and we would not be able to contribute much to that. But Paul just reminded us, what we proclaim is not ourselves. We do not depend on our programs or personalities or prescriptions to get the results that only God can give. 
And so we preach Christ. We know it is only Christ who can change the rebel's heart. Only Christ can make the obstinate one willing to walk in humility and obedience. Only Christ can heal simmering wounds of anger and bitterness. And if we're honest, we can identify the ways that he has done that in our lives, or perhaps the ways that he still needs to do that in our lives. And when he does, and when he has, he is glorified. And in our weakness, Christ is manifested. And in our weakness, the power of the gospel is revealed. So the question is, are you willing to be weak? Are you willing to let Christ work through you? Are you willing to let your weakness be displayed? Willing to walk with and be committed to others who are weaker than you? Not criticizing them, but being one who encourages and builds them up. It may be that Christ is waiting to show his power to one who is struggling until you are willing to be the one through whom Christ will work in that person's life. So will you resist his power in order to maintain your own status? Embrace your weakness. Embrace the weakness of your brother and sister. And this does not mean that we advocate incompetence. We apply ourselves. We seek to learn and to grow and to understand. But we also acknowledge our limitations. And so we do not condemn or disdain or push away the one who is weak, even if the weak one is yourself. But as a servant of Christ and as a servant of your brother or sister, seek to build them up. And so the power of the gospel is demonstrated in our weakness, in our status as clay pots. But Paul goes on. He says the power of the gospel is also demonstrated in our suffering. And he talks in verses 8 to 9 about four different types of suffering that he's experienced. So we'll look at those um, briefly. He says we are, we are this but not that. And the first one is we are afflicted but not crushed. And he details some of his afflictions back in, in chapter 1. And he says he rejoiced in his afflictions and that it was the means to experience God's comfort and a way to be equipped to comfort others. But it still was not a pleasant experience. The word he uses has the idea of being pressed upon. So he says our afflictions press upon us, but we are not crushed. You know, I assume and I almost guarantee that after the service today, if it's not already happened, somebody will ask somebody how their week was, and they will say, busy. We are a busy society. We're always doing something, and the next thing comes at us before we're finished with what we're doing, and before we finish the thing before that. You know, if it was just a list of mundane tasks that needed to be done, it was one thing. That is pressing enough. But most of us have a weightier list of things that are undone. There are relationships that are troubled, or marriages that are distant, or children that are lost, or temptations that linger. And these press in on us with all their weight, and we suffer. We suffer because of the sins of others, and we suffer because of our own sins. But in this pressing upon, Paul says, we are not crushed. For some people, suffering is disorienting. 
And for some people, it causes them to reject God entirely because they thought that God should be one who protects them from suffering. But Jesus warned us that we will suffer. He told his disciples before his death in John 16, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus promised that in this world we will have tribulation. But he also promised that in Christ we may have peace. The promise of peace is not based on how well that we do in our tribulation, but it is based on the fact that Christ has overcome the world. And so that means for the Christian, all of our suffering is temporary. It will end. And not only will it end, but the end result will be far better than the suffering was bad. And Paul tells us this in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that doesn't take away the pain of what we are suffering now. And so Paul goes on to say we are perplexed. We are at a loss. We don't know what to do. And sometimes the weight of suffering does that to us. It leaves us at a point where even the simplest decisions are a big chore. And sometimes we have really big decisions that must be made, and those are a chore. There is no clear answer. There is no certainty on the best way forward. And each path will have its own hazards. And each path will have its critics. And each decision has the risk of people saying, I told you so, when it does not work out. And yet a decision must be made. Paul uses the same root word when he says we are perplexed but not driven to despair. So he's saying we're perplexed but we're not totally perplexed. We are despairing but we're not in despair. We have not given up hope. Now this issue of despair is a critical issue in our culture today. There was a report published back in June of this year that said in 2017, more than 152,000 Americans died from so-called deaths of despair. And these are deaths from alcohol and drug-induced fatalities and suicide. It's the highest number ever recorded and more than double that of 1999. And the age group that was most impacted by these deaths of despair was the millennials, which is the generation of those who are now in their low 20s to mid-30s. And there's no single reason for the increase in these deaths, but one of the researchers from Princeton said, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that hope disappeared and community disappeared. Now, the issues behind the despair in America's young people are complicated, and there's no single solution that will answer the problem, and there's no simplistic answer to the problem. But one contributing factor, at least, that the secular researchers are not addressing is our culture's rejection of God and rejection of moral absolutes. You know, popular culture teaches that you can 
be whatever you want to be and whoever you want to be. And as long as you're not hurting anyone else, you can do whatever you want to do. But the fact is, if everything is relative, then there is no meaning or purpose in life. And despair is the logical outcome. And you might as well soothe your pain with whatever makes you feel good. Now, that's not to say that being a Christian will take all your problems away. But the promise that Paul held to even in his despairing is that the despair will not win. He did not give in to despair in chapter 1, even when it felt like he received the sentence of death. But it was in his weakest point and in the time of his greatest suffering that he remembered that God saves, and it is God who will deliver. God's power is made manifest in our suffering, not because we do not suffer, but because he ultimately delivers us through suffering to something better. And so the policy experts might institute public health programs and mental health safety nets and drug abuse plans, which are all good and necessary, but they cannot offer what only God can give, which is a hope for redemption. The church is the only institution that can offer real solutions to the problems of the death of despair in our culture. Not by taking away the the pain, but by pointing them to the one who will redeem the pain for something better. And Paul goes on in verse 9 by listing more suffering. The first two that he listed, being afflicted and perplexed, are more internal or psychological suffering. And the last two are physical. He says he is persecuted or harassed, but not forsaken, not abandoned. And he is struck down or knocked down, hurt badly, but he is not destroyed. He is not ruined or lost. Now, most of us don't know what physical persecution is like. We have the freedom to meet publicly here to worship without fear of punishment, either by authorities or by angry community members. But for many Christians today, and and for much of history, persecution and physical suffering for one's faith is the cost of being a believer. It was part of taking up the cross and following Christ. And millions of Christians today live in areas where there are high levels of persecution, and thousands are killed every year for their faith. And here in the time of the Apostle Paul, it was also a time of persecution, and he was aware that his life could be ended by a martyr's death. But that did not stop him from preaching the gospel. That did not drive him away from caring about spreading the good news. So even with the physical suffering that he endured, which is more than we will ever go through probably, he rejoiced in it. He was not forsaken. He was not abandoned by God. He was not spiritually ruined. His faith in Christ was not lost in spite of his physical suffering. So how have you suffered, and how does suffering impact your faith? Whether it is psychological or physical, suffering is deeply personal. And it is formative. It changes you. It changes your perspective on life. It changes your relationships. And some people, in their suffering, resolve they will never suffer again. And so they do all they can to protect themselves from experiencing that kind of pain even if it means building walls and not getting close to others and not getting close to God. 
But suffering does not, not mean that God was not or is not near. It does remind us that we are broken people, and that we are surrounded by broken people, and that all the systems in the world, including the church, are affected by the brokenness of sin and the reality of evil. And so the message of the gospel in suffering, in brokenness and evil, and in this world of tribulation, is the words of Jesus when he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And his words, in me you may have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So suffering is not a sign of our defeat, but it's a way that Christ can work in us to demonstrate his power as we allow the suffering to shape us into his image. And as we allow the suffering to remind us that the world is not our home. And as we allow the suffering to equip us to become people who move into the world as agents of the gospel, proclaiming God's kingdom and the story of redemption. But Paul isn't done. The power, he says, is demonstrated in our weakness. It is demonstrated in our suffering. It is also demonstrated in our death. He had just said he suffered physical persecution, but he wasn't destroyed. He was obviously still alive. But what does he mean by, by the fact that we are dying he says he is carrying in the body the death of Jesus and always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So verse 10 and 11 are, are parallel verses, parallel ideas, basically saying we are dead in Christ so that his life can be manifested or made visible or revealed in our bodies, in our mortal flesh. And so his life is present in us now. Verse 10 in the original has the wording arranged to put the emphasis on death. So it's something like this. Always the death of Jesus in our body carrying around, in order that the life of Jesus in our body may be revealed. And Paul's great statement of faith in Philippians 3 carries the same idea, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So we notice the progression here in our text, from weakness to suffering to death. And this is the path that Christ calls us to walk. It is not a popular message. It is not something that a marketing department would come up with to attract new members. But what does it actually mean to die? How do we carry in our body the death of Jesus? Well, during his time on earth, Jesus foretold his own suffering and death. And then he told his followers, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? And then Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So taking up the cross, as Jesus calls us to, implies death. And presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice implies death. And we are to take up our cross daily. 
This is not a, a suicide mission where we are just destroyed in, in, in one grand um, death mission, but it's a daily thing. And Paul gives us another perspective in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So what this means is that we change the filter by which we live our lives. We make decisions, we set goals, we see others' needs through a Jesus filter. Every situation takes a different light when we change our viewpoint. So things like our careers and families and things we buy and how we spend our money and how we respond to injustices against us, we look at all of these in view of Christ. And these things are filtered by the priority of Christ's kingdom. Now, any well-functioning organization has a clear mission that guides it. It has a sense of purpose, and the people of the organization know what they are about. They can answer the questions, why are we here and where are we going? And the mission of an organization is central to any major decisions or strategic plans that are implemented, because no decisions are made that run against the mission. And so it is for us as believers. Our mission changes from a self-focused, inward perspective on life to one that is centered on Christ. We die to ourselves, and we live for Christ. And so if your mission in life is to have a happy family and comfortable retirement and fun toys, you will live differently. You will make decisions differently than if your mission in life is to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul told Titus, the grace of God is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So when we turn away from worldly pleasures and ungodly attitudes in order to become like Christ, we are dying to self. We evaluate ourselves and our pursuits in light of God's call to love Him and to love our neighbor. And then Paul says in verse 12, death is at work in us, but life in you. He was embracing death and accepting personal loss in order that the church could experience life. He was dying to himself in order for them to live. He was not protecting his interests. He was not being stingy and extending grace to others. He generously gave of himself for their good. And to what end? Why would Paul live, and why should we live, in such sacrificial and self-denying ways? It is because he knows the power of the resurrection. If we are faithful in our weakness, suffering, and even to death, we will also experience the power of the gospel in our resurrection. In the end, all of our suffering, suffering is temporary, whether it's physical suffering relational pain, or emotional anguish. They're all difficult. It's a dark valley, and for some people, they never fully emerge from this on this side of eternity. But even if your suffering lasts the rest of your life, you will not suffer forever if you are a believer. You can claim the promise of the resurrection. The God who raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and bring us into his presence. 
That hope anchors us in our times of suffering from total despair. God is good, and he will deliver us. His grace is with us in ways that we do not imagine. And if our eyes are open to his grace, our response will be gratitude. And as we become messengers of grace and dispensers of God's grace to others, his love is spread spread abroad through our spheres of influence, and more people respond with thanksgiving. So how has the power of the gospel been evident in your life? Are you willing to be weak? Are you willing to embrace your neediness, knowing that God uses clay pots for his glory? And does suffering sanctify you, or does it alienate you? Can you reach out to God in faith and love others, even when you are hurting, or even when you have been mistreated? Have you died to yourself? Have you renounced the evil in the world and in your own heart because your mission is to follow a different king? This is the path that Jesus invites us to walk. This is the essence of the gospel. Christ does not call us to places where he has not already trod. He too emptied himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross, and God raised him and exalted him. He calls us to walk the same path. Before the gospel takes us to the far reaches of China or to the ghettos of the poor, it starts by calling us to faithfulness in our families, in our church, and in our community. The power of the gospel is on display in every believer. Are you walking in the power of the gospel? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you would extend your power to us, to us who are vessels of clay. Call us to walk in closer fellowship with you and to be faithful to spreading your message in the ways that you call us to through our weakness, suffering, and death. We pray through Christ. Amen.